pure audio, right? There's no video on your show? That is correct, yeah. Okay, so Tina and I can wave at each other and do hand signals. Yeah, yeah, you can do whatever you like. I'll wait till she's talking about something really serious, and then I'll just start really digging into my nose. No! <laughs> <laughs> I'm Slothy. I'm Tina. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Slothy, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? My name is John Shiring. It's not only Slothy. I'm not like Cher. <laughs> and uh, I, I should probably plug my game studio, Gravity Well. Cool. Do you want to tell us about Gravity Well? Sure. Uh, so Gravity Well is a new AAA game studio uh, that is started by myself and uh, Drew McCoy, as well as having amazing people like Tina, but we're just getting started now. Cool. Should I call you John or should I call you Slothy? Both are absolutely fine. Okay. Most people call me Slothy because there's just too many Johns. So. That is a good reason. Not on this show, though. <laughs> uh, and Tina, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Hi, um, I'm Tina Sanchez. I've been in the game industry for 14 years. I also work at Gravity Well as a lead producer. And I guess the thing that I would take time to plug right now is that uh, creating personal boundaries in an office setting is a good thing. And uh, just make sure that people don't cross them and make it clear when they do. And I think that that would lead to a healthier work relationship dynamic. Sounds smart. Sounds hard to do. Uh, it takes practice, but you get used to it. Yeah, I, after 14 years, I imagine you would. <laughs> yeah. Are you ready to start on some topics? Yes. Sure. Uh, Tina, your first topic is what do indie devs imagine AAA is like? Yeah, so, you know, when, when you work in AAA, I'm always just curious what indie developers imagine what our workplace is like or what kind of things we go through, just because I think indie development is so different from AAA. Yeah. I think I'm the only indie developer on this show, so I can only speak for myself, unfortunately. It would be interesting to have a panel about this. Mm -hmm. I've never never worked in AAA. I, I know that, like, just logistically speaking, it has to be more regimented in terms of, like, people have specific roles instead of one person doing everything, which is how I work. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely going to be related to team size. Right. There's going to be a lot more overhead in terms of keeping people working on towards the same vision which is just something you get for free when you're just one person. Yeah. Also, there's going to be a lot of all the problems that come up when you're dealing with cramming a bunch of people into the same room and making them work together, like office drama and that sort of thing. You know, I've, I've been making games professionally for like eight years, longer than that if you count, like the stuff I made as a hobbyist. So I think of myself as being, you know, fairly knowledgeable, but I have definitely found myself to be pretty ignorant of what goes on in AAA. Have you never had any drive to, to work on in AAA? Uh, you know, I, I, I've interviewed at a couple of places. And in fact, I interviewed at a couple of places. And like the all, all the places I've, I've been at, the interviewer was a fan of, of my work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was just coincidence or if they were like, oh, I want to interview that guy. But they consistently were like, yeah, we don't really know if you can work with people. What? It's... <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Is that something you agreed with? I haven't I haven't done much of it, you know? I've I've worked mostly on my own. That's how I'm comfortable working. I have definitely like had loose teams in terms of like 
I'm working with an artist on this game, or I'm working with a bunch of artists, or I'm working with a bunch of musicians, but that's always just like me saying, here's what I need from you, and then they bring it back, and then I tell them if I need something different from them. And that's mm-hmm. very different from like being embedded in a hierarchy. Okay. Ah. I do think it's fair to say that I, I, it, it is an unknown as to whether I can work on it on a big team. Do you ever find yourself in a position where it's like hard to motivate yourself or like, do you ever second guess some of the decision-making processes you make? Uh, I definitely had to work through some shit. I didn't really learn to work on purpose as opposed to when I was excited Mm -hmm. until like my mid thirties. And so we're talking about like during the development of Glittermitten Grove was when I figured out like, how do I actually get work done when I'm not like amped to work on something? And it was just a matter of like the impetus of like not wanting to disappoint thousands of people. But that wasn't really enough to get me working minute to minute. That sort of deadline has to be immediate for it to function for me. So I ended up creating like a accountability email a mailing list where I was mailing a bunch of people who I respected and saying, you know, here's what I'm going to be working on. Here's what I'm doing next week. Here's what I got done this week. And I don't, I don't even know if they read it. They never replied, mostly. But it was just a matter of like, they might read it and judge me. And that was enough for me to... Motivate yourself? To motivate me, yeah. I was just going to say, it's interesting that you say, you know, the thing that motivated you is you don't want to disappoint the thousands of people. Um, I feel like that's a motivator for us as well. You know, you just yeah. want to make something that's good and appreciated. Uh, I will say, though, that the accountability part is a lot harder to miss in AAA because you immediately feel the effects of someone that's to your left or right that needs something from you and says, hey, where the hell is this at, right? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to guess it would be the opposite where, like, well, if I screw up, there's going to be a bunch of people who can, who can pick up the slack. Hmm. I've never been in a situation where, for example, I've had code reviews. And and so I'm wholly responsible for making sure the code is good. And that sounds so luxurious to be like, I can just make this commit and then somebody will tell me whether I did a good job. Yes, Lothi. Uh, have you ever been in a position where you didn't have anyone to review your code? Uh, yeah, most of the time. That's that's how we work. There's there's only like a few windows where we actually do code reviews, and those are usually like right before a major milestone, like tree lock. We would do code reviews before people checked in, but otherwise, uh, even for new employees, there was a, a a window in the beginning where you'd get your check ins reviewed, and then after that, it was not necessarily true that people are going to be going over each year check ins. Is that just a matter of like trying to work a little bit faster? No, it's, uh, there's some cultural things that can go wrong with code reviews because it really builds a two-tier system of like the reviewers and the people who aren't trusted. And so I think it's important to hire good people and trust them. Right. You might screw up and someone will notice it. Maybe it's you, maybe it's someone else and you'll fix it. And the best way to learn is to feel empowered enough to make changes because as soon as you have to like run things by someone else, people will make less changes. Mm-hmm. We don't really want that. Having never been in that in that situation, I'd always assumed that everybody reviews everybody's code. Like you maybe even get assigned, like looking at this commit, assigned at random. It will happen sometimes, but it kind of depends on the effects of your 
check-in or how interesting it sounds from when your description. So there's people who just want to like see how you did it. Oh, so someone someone decides to do it. In the companies that I've worked at, yeah, I know this is not necessarily standard. Right. But yeah, sometimes you'll get the newer programmers who want to diff changes of the more senior programmers to learn how to make changes and how systems work. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. And sometimes it's the other way around. That's sort of the what I feel like is the classic assumption of you're you're a new programmer and there's a bunch of senior programmers who are going to be going over everything you do and telling you how you did it wrong and telling you you have to go fix it. Yeah. And that is not necessarily the case that I'm used to. Right. Yeah. I've worked at a studio recently that um, where you had to have someone diff your change or even like look at it before you even checked in and even had like multiple reviewers on it before you could check in. So it would take, you know, that much longer to get a feature in. I I think it varies between studios and the philosophies of every uh, lead. Yeah. I've seen, you know, the side with like Respawn, for instance, where like what Slothy was describing, and then I've seen the other side where it's like very meticulous and there's no way you can check in like at the end of the day without someone looking at it. They'll encourage you to just wait till the next day. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Your other question was, do I ever second guess my decisions? Um, and I think that one's interesting to get into too, because I, for the most part, I don't because I think it's more interesting to play out the decision and then see how it goes in testing. One of the advantages of, of being indie is that you can, I can have an idea for a feature implemented in a day and have it in front of the testers that afternoon. I can see from their reaction whether or not it's a good idea. Hmm. I was tweaking, you know, the the script, the conversation trees right up until like the day before I shipped uh, the hat DLC. And you could never do that, for example, in a game that has voice acting. Yeah. Yeah, I really get the impression that in AAA, like, you don't even know if it's a good game until like really close to shipping. <laughs> that That is not my experience, but I definitely hear that said a lot. <laughs> oh, okay. When you're making like a game the way I make them, like the first thing you want to do is make it fun. And so you do prototypes until you find something fun. And then, like, at least you know you have a fun game to begin with. But when so much of what is interesting about a game or what is appealing about a game is presentation and polish, which is often the case in AAA, like, it's, that's just, stuff's just not there until really close to the end. Yeah. I I think that is not necessarily the case for us. But I, yeah, again, I, I know some places do work that way. If you remember, like, Titanfall 1... How big is your team? Uh, well, on Titanfall 1, if you think back to when we showed the game at E3, that was, like, a year before ship, uh-huh. you can see those, you know, gameplay videos. It was a live demo that we were doing. And it lines up pretty closely with the final game. Even before that, we kind of knew where we were headed, and, and we had enough polish to show it. I think it was, like, 10 months, because it was E3, and we shipped in February. Yeah. But, you know, we were at least at a point where we had pretty good polish, and we could show the game off. But how big was the team at that time? It was probably about 65. Yeah, the thing I've noticed is that the smaller the team, the easier and quicker you are to pivot on ideas or even feature changes. It's much harder to like steer everyone in a similar direction when there's over 300 people. That is very, very difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the part that I find interesting about that the ability to pivot is sort of what enables you to take more creative risks yeah yeah because if you know that like you can't really change gears then you're just trying to keep this train going down the tracks 
Yeah. I find that understandable, but also sort of a collective problem we have right now in the industry. Yeah. I mean, when you really think about it, when you have that, like so many people working on their own particular part of the project, um, whenever you make a change, when it's at that big of a scale, you know, there's going to be people that have their work cut and it's a complete in the trash. We're not going to use it kind of thing. And that can demoralize some people. And when you're working at such a large team, morale is like a a big driver of uh, motivation. And to maintain, you know, motivation when you tell people we're not using your work anymore is a is a job in itself. Yeah, there's there's got to be like some mental gymnastics you have to do to be like, you have to ride the line of being invested enough that you want to do a good job, but not so invested that it'll hurt you if you if the work doesn't end up being used. I've never succeeded at that. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I think everyone in game development wants to make a good game. They don't ever want to ship something bad. But when you work with a really large team, your motivation day to day seems to be more of like, how do I help the people that I visibly see almost every day? Yeah. And how do I get things to them and help them maintain their motivation and also like progress? You don't want to, you know, hinder them in any way or like be the cause of them having to work later nights to try to catch up. It's almost like you're kind of making the goal line a little bit smaller in scope because you're trying to pay attention to the people that are in your immediate vicinity rather than like take something from the starting line all the way to the finish um, like indie devs do, I imagine. Yeah, it's very different. I indeed uh, enjoy meeting indie devs at game events. I hope we can all be in person again one day at a GDC or E3. Yeah, GDC is a fake GDC is happening as we speak right now. But like, yeah. I, I think the last time I went to an actual talk at a GDC was at my own talk in 2014, that's not why I go. You know, they don't have a uh, virtual Yerba Buena gardens that you can go hang out on the lawn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe next year. Yeah, hopefully. John, your topic is my cousin is an astronaut. It's so awesome. <laughs> can I, like, uh, uh, my cousin is an astronaut. What's her name? It is a true statement. <laughs> yes. They, my favorite is when people immediately follow that up with, what's his name? Oh. Uh, my cousin, uh, her name is Pamela Melroy. She went to space three times, twice as the pilot and once as a commander of her mission. And I saw two of the launches. First one got delayed and we didn't get to catch it. Uh, but I got to see her the last two of her launches. Like in person? Yeah. Was that, was that in Florida? Yeah, it was all Cape Canaveral. Right. Uh, so she was on the on shuttles. Yeah, the second one I got to sit at that like place you you've probably seen on TV back when the shuttles went used to go up of with the big clock and there's like a big lake. Right. Um, that is the closest civilians can get. I'm probably wrong, but I think it's somewhere like four miles away from the launch pad. Oh wow! And that was intense. That was such a crazy experience to witness because the way it gets captured on camera just doesn't really give you anything because i mean first of all like the the flame is like kind of hurts your eyes it's like magnesium bright right and the sound is just incredible it's just like the biggest subwoofer you've ever felt (laughs) and it goes like straight through your chest yeah and actually that spot where you sit there's like bleachers with a building behind it and the building reflects the sound back forward again so like you get the bass passing through your body from the front and then it hits that wall and comes back at you from the back it's wild it's such a weird feeling when you said it's there for i was sure you were going to say it's there for effect 
It's there just to like <laughs> make it sound louder. NASA doesn't do anything for effect. It's it's some like you know old government building that they don't want to tear down because it has something in it. <laughs> right, right, right. My granddad worked at Grumman. I I believe on some some aerospace stuff, and we lived such that like we we so that we could we could see the shuttle launches from our from the backyard. Oh wow, which was really neat. And you know it wasn't close, but you could see it happen. Uh, I do recommend it. Uh, pretty tough to do nowadays. But uh, it, it was very cool. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the missions. What were they? Do- what was? Sure. What was she doing up there? I think all three of them were basically assembling the space station. But when was this then? So she was on STS ninety two, STS one twelve, and STS one twenty. And I think ninety two was her first one. Um, they're not always in numerical order, but that one was in two thousand. Uh, so they took up this big chunk called the Z one truss that was kind of a hub in the space station, I believe. Um, and they connected a lot of other pieces to it. So that was a, an important one to get up there. Yeah. And then the second one was the S1 truss. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't send them both up at once. Yeah, if only. The third one where she was the, the commander of the mission, they took uh, the Harmony node up to the space station. And that, again, enabled them to add more stuff to the station. But that was, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but that was when... There was a female commander of the space station, and so my cousin was the commander of the Discovery, and they opened the hatch, and the two commanders met and hugged, and it was the first time, and I think the only time that's ever happened with uh, two commanders who were both women up in space. Right. Oh, wow. It was cool. First time there have been two women in space at the same time. No, that's happened a bunch. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so about when was that? That was, let's see, that was 2007. Yeah. Uh, but not since then, so would you say she's a retired astronaut at this point? Yeah, I don't know if it's like president, where you're president <laughs> even when you're not president anymore, right. or if it's, if it's I, I've never uh, asked, yeah. but I think, I think astronaut feels to me like an achievement you get, and you get to be an astronaut forever. Yeah, Buzz Aldrin is definitely an astronaut, so that checks out. Uh, with the new administration, she is actually uh, second in charge of NASA now. Oh, that's... You could ask for favors. You could probably get something set up <laughs> yourself. Yeah, the the descriptions of those missions um, reminds me a lot of like what it must be like when like a kid gets a tour of a game studio, and it's like, oh, it's a bunch of people sitting at computers. Okay. Yeah, one of the things I was always wondering is like, did she get to do a spacewalk? And then you quickly find out that no, the pilot does not get sent out into space in case something bad happens. <laughs> you you really need a pilot. Need the pilot to be able to come back. Yeah. The commander is pretty expendable, though. Like, anybody could command. I don't know about that either. <laughs> pretty amazing. This is my other AAA studio opinion, is that literally anybody could be CEO. <laughs> Depends on who's below, below you. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And when did she join NASA? So she was in the Air Force. Like, basically, I think it was, she was like six or seven or somewhere in that range. She decided she wanted to be an astronaut someday. Wow. And then designed her path forward to achieve that she was in the air force because she wanted to be a pilot she flew in i believe desert storm and then she was a test pilot because that's like the next step towards working for nasa and applied and got rejected by nasa and she was just like heartbroken because again she decided when she was very little that that was all she wanted and i think it was a year later that nasa uh contacted her again and asked her to reapply she was rejected for like a very technical reason, and they basically said they had changed 
some of their uh, requirements and that she should reapply. And so it went from like this, like, you know, gutting moment of I can't achieve my dream to like, they told me to come back again. And so she reapplied and then was, she was accepted into the astronaut program. So then she did lots and lots and lots of training. And that uh, first flight, I know they trained an absurd amount of time and it kept getting delayed. I just can't imagine the anxiety that all must have caused. Like the the entire life of not knowing if you were ever going to be an astronaut. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of anxiety, though, what was interesting is her dad, my uncle, I was standing near him at that second launch asking, you know, like, how does it, how do you feel with her on this giant rocket going into space? And he was saying, it feels like watching your daughter run across a busy highway and hoping she makes it to the other side. (laughs) But you just have to be supportive. And I was like, yeah, that's. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's wow. a yeah. But there's also like a, you'd have to extend the analogy to like maybe she's saving a puppy by running across the highway. You have to also be proud of her <laughs> for what she's doing. Yeah, we were all super proud of her, but it just like like there's a version of watching the shuttle go up with people on it or a rocket go up with people on it that kind of is like watching a car chase that you're like, yeah, hope this goes well, but it's interesting and I have to watch because it might not go well. Right. But like when yeah. it's like a family member on it, it's a very different feeling. Yeah, I don't. I've never run the numbers, but the chances of of somebody dying are pretty far from zero. Yeah, that was actually when the Columbia. There was a lot of like pushback on NASA of like you should immediately stop doing shuttles. And I remember back then, like I was pushing back against that and saying like, don't like infantilize these astronauts. Like they understand the risks they're taking on. You don't have to treat them like. This is news to them that yeah. it's dangerous. But they're not the only ones paying the cost of, of uh, death, though. Right. It's I, also demoralizing yeah. for everybody. Yeah, I, I now have a little bit more nuance to it than just let them do the dangerous thing that they signed up for. Right. It also drives up insurance rates. <laughs> yeah, NASA doesn't have insurance. Oh, okay. <laughs> not, not even liability insurance? I mean, I think as far, I, I don't know for sure, but I think my cousin was officially part of the Air Force. So if you're part of the Air Force and something bad happens, I mean, you get what a, any other soldier would get. You don't get yeah. special NASA treatment. Right. A burial in space would be pretty cool, though. <laughs> Did you play Wing Commander? It wasn't that cool. <laughs> and okay, the topic is now uh, chasing your dreams. The idea of like picking what you want to do as a grown-up like when you're 30 at age six, and then pursuing it your entire life. You know, it worked out great for her, but I feel like that doesn't work out for most people. And I I wonder whether or not, like, it's sensible to, like, discourage your kid from making that sort of decision. Like, if nobody des- decided to do that, then you'd still have astronauts. It would just be people who were, like, they were in the Air Force, and then they're like, whoops, I'm an astronaut now. They just Or, like, they applied because, like, oh, that so- sounds like fun. I'll try that. I actually wonder like what the what the ratio is of like people who got into the astronaut program who were like driven to do so versus were like they happened to have the qualifications and decided to check it out. Well, I think early on Yeah, everybody was like that. They were just like doing they were yeah, just a lot test of them, pilots. Yeah. And I bet pretty quickly you got just people who were really enamored with it. But the 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 dad uh, metaphor you're going with here is very interesting because I don't know if you've seen uh, an indie film called Moana. I've seen the first five minutes of it. 
I liked it, but we didn't we didn't keep watching. My kid is not good at watching stories at this point. Oh man, yeah. But yeah, it's the do I teach my kid to be, you know, an air conditioner repair person because that's a really stable job and it pays okay versus do I teach my kid to want to be president and know that they probably won't. Yeah, be. I am actually um pretty strongly of the belief that like in the 80s one of the things that we we figured out as a culture that like self-esteem is the way we want children to feel good about themselves. Like it's it's bad to feel bad about yourself, and so we'll teach everybody that that everybody's awesome and can do anything. And what you get from that is like a generation of either people who figure out that you're bullshitting them or are delusional. And the alternative, which I still think is not part of mainstream culture, is to teach people that it's okay to be average. Like it's perfectly healthy to like not actually be great at a thing and not which is not to say you shouldn't strive but you know you shouldn't feel like a failure because you don't succeed yeah that makes a lot of yeah. sense i mean you would want i mean for me I, I would want my child to be ambitious but also understand that if they tried and it didn't work out that that's okay too yeah i'm trying to remember what the the counter term is like in, as opposed to self-esteem i think it's self-compassion the idea that you can observe the your own failures and be okay with them. Yeah. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot with my two kids of like the the people that they know from our daily life are all people who live here in LA and like make video games or TV shows or movies and like it's funny when we talk about like what do you want to be when you grow up because I'm tr I'm always trying to like remind them that like most people's jobs are not that. Yeah, yeah. Video games are full of like extremely driven people just because it's such a hostile thing to do, like the way the industry works. Yeah. Like even as an indie, like it's really, really hard to uh, to succeed in any any meaningful way. Do you feel like it depends on how you measure success for yourself too as an indie dev? Oh, I mean, certainly there's different types of success. Like Frog Fractions was a huge success in some respects, but was not very successful financially because they didn't have any monetization strategy at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't have like, I didn't charge for it. I didn't have ads. I didn't, I didn't have microtransactions, uh, anything like that. And, it, and so like, but it was a success, for example, in terms of like, it made a bunch of people happy. It made me feel like I was good artist, gave me a reputation among other game developers such that I was able to turn that into a career. And so yeah. in those respects, it is a success. I was trying to get into game development in like 2004 and did not succeed. Like I couldn't find anybody who wanted to hire me. And at that point, I was just like, well, I'll just be a regular programmer, you know, doing websites or whatever. And I did that for years. And I kind of only got into games accidentally. Like this is like the, the the original test pilots who became the astronauts. Where like I'm effectively one of those. Where like oh whoops I'm a game developer. Whoops I'm a successful game developer. <laughs> and, and so like I'm probably one of the least driven game developers to exist. The beginner's guide is, as far as I could tell, a game about how it feels to be an artist. And all the, the pain of being driven to succeed and worrying that you're not doing as well as you hoped to be doing. 
and like feeling not as good as the people around you. When this game was released, I would my my Twitter, I mostly follow game developers, it was just full of people who were like, oh, this is me in a nutshell. Like it was a unanimous response to that and I was just like, I don't I don't get any of this. Like just make a cool thing because you enjoy doing it. Because that's how I work. When I'm making video games, I'm like, Haha, this is hilarious. This is, uh, this is really <laughs> fun. I hope the players like it too. But if they don't, it's okay because I enjoyed making it. Yeah. Interesting. How do you feel on launch day? Oh, and then I'm definitely concerned about the response. Then, and then, like, I do a lot of playtesting too. So, like, I will do my due diligence of like, well, if if it turns out that what I made. Uh, doesn't resonate with players. I will. I will fix it because I do want to be able to support my family. Yeah, it's interesting because you said you're you're concerned uh, on launch day, and and this is an overgeneralization, so I want to be careful. But it feels like a lot of indie devs find the process to be the fun part, and launch isn't like the big payoff they've been working up towards necessarily. And for me, it's totally. Maybe not totally, but it's mostly the opposite of like, I am excited for launch day. That is like my, that's a great day. Yeah. And development isn't always fun, but it's some, it usually it's pretty fun, but there's definitely. Yeah. Development is certainly can be a slog. If you're trying to make a commercial product, there's a lot of, a lot of time you have to put into polish, which is annoying. I, I guess I would much rather do game jams endlessly where I, <laughs> I make a, idea in a weekend and then forget about it that would be more fun in terms of the process uh but it is fun to see people's reactions to the game and then to see is how well it's doing like that that is very exciting it almost feels vindicating in a way too right when people are enjoying what you've worked on because you know game development is an extremely vulnerable process and i don't hear people say that enough when you're sharing your own personal take and ideas on things you know, if, if people don't like it, it you kind of need to have tough enough skin to understand why they don't like it and try to improve on it, right? Yeah, there's a lot of that uh, during development. I've never felt the the vindication though. Like that's not been a, like even with the launch of Frog Fractions, I didn't I didn't expect any sort of success from that, and so like it was more like shock that this was happening hmm. because I when I launched that game, I was just like I. Like, I, I was putting it out there for the world, but what I expected was that a few dozen of my friends would play it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was really building it for them. And so the vindication kind of implies that, like, I knew it. I knew this would be a good idea, but I didn't know. I didn't know it was a good idea at all. <laughs> and then um, Glittermitten Grove, I kind of went, like, towards the end of development, I, I knew that, like, this is going to be... Like, I'm really proud of this, but also this is going to be a game that is not for a lot of people. Like, the people that it's for, it's really going to be for, but that, like, everybody else is, like, are going to be left cold or annoyed, uh, which turned out to be the case. But that doesn't feel like vindication. Being, being right in that case doesn't feel like vindication either. <laughs> I guess in AAA, when you're around a lot of people that are also on the same page and think, like, oh, this is going to be great. I hope it's great. I want it to be great. And then when you hear other people say, Oh, it's great. Then that's the part I I feel where I'm like, okay, yeah, we we did it. Yeah, We're, you know, that's the feeling that's vindicated. Yeah, that's yeah. It. What were you gonna say, Sloppy? What you said is perfectly 
That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was also what you were going to say. It's similar enough and said better. Uh, Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. So my topic is finding an ad for a Medicare scam in my drafts folder. Like I was in Gmail. This was like a week ago. And I happened to look in my drafts folder and there was this spam message in there. I don't I don't know how it got there, but I, I guess I'll I'll load it up and read it. Is this in Gmail? This was in Gmail. Okay. A little known Medicare benefit could boost your social security checks by up to one thousand seven hundred and eighty two dollars per year. If you're currently on Medicare, a special Medicare Advantage Part B premium give back rebate benefit could boost your social security check. By $1,728. Read more at, and then there's a URL. I haven't clicked the URL because I'm terrified. But it's in your drafts folder as if you were going to send it? As if I was going to, there's no two field. There's nothing in the two field, so I wasn't going to send it to anybody. But it's from an email from me that never got sent. And I'm just like, how the, how does this happen? Oh, change your email. There, change your password. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's a good idea. Yeah. Like, you know how. If you have a pet, like, or rather, if you don't have a pet and you're lying in bed and you hear a weird noise somewhere in the house, it freaks you out because it, what, what, what could that be? But if you do have a pet, you're like, oh, it's the pet. Like, oh, the, the squeaking floorboard in my closet, that's definitely the cat. I feel like having a phone that I put in my pocket and sometimes forget to turn it off, turn off the screen. And so, like, my pocket sends a text message to somebody. Oh, I feel like yeah. that's my out here, where like somehow <laughs> my pocket wrote this email <laughs> about Medicare. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, maybe it copied and pasted it from somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, the bad news is most likely someone hacked your Gmail and the they're putting spam ads in your drafts folder. Yeah, I guess so. But that's not very romantic. So I want to go with. You woke up and found a way to get an extra $148 a month, and you wrote this email and thought about becoming a spam kingpin. Yeah, yeah. I, I, wo- <laughs> I had a dream about Medicare, and then I woke up and wrote this email, and then I went back to sleep and forgot about it. And you're like, maybe I'm going to be a, a spam magnate. And then you woke up the next day, and we're like, well, back to normal life. <laughs> yeah, like, what if this is just a, an, a meta ad for, like, absinthe or something? Like, you drink and enjoyed it so much one evening and you wrote this thing that was crazy that you forgot about. (laughs) That sounds like me. That sounds like something I would do. (laughs) So I'm thinking about like, you know how one of the forms of a hyperlink can be a mail to address where like in a web page, you can click on a link and that will open up your email program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, if you click on a link in a web page, one instead of HTTP colon and then a URL, uh, it would be mail to colon and then an email address. And if you click on that link, it opens up your email program and like starts composing an email to that address. And I'm wondering if the mail to protocol can include like a subject line and a body as well. Hmm. I think it can do a subject line. I I think there's they have some version where you do plus something and it'll append it. Yeah. I don't know if you can do body, but they might be able to. So I might have like clicked one of those links. Yeah. Do you think you closed it or do you think they automated that part? Oh, I, yeah. Good question. I don't know. God, what a weird thing. I would uh, check my sent 
folder to see if there's any weirdness in there. <laughs> I'm going to do that right now. Right now I'm checking my drafts. <laughs> like everything this month looks like a real email that I really sent on purpose. Oh, that's good. That's a good sign. Yeah, that's that's nice. Yeah, I would change my password though for sure. <laughs> I should do that anyway. Yeah. My email password's been the same for over a decade. Should we all change our Gmail passwords right now? Is this something we're all going to do? Uh, I'm, I'm going to wait till after the show. Okay. But probably, yeah. But then you don't have any witnesses. Uh, th that's okay. I don't need my email password notarized. <laughs> uh, so uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Brad, this is a write-in. Brad asks, the 30 days half rhyme sucks as a mnemonic because so many months rhyme. Everybody should use the knuckle, knuckle mnemonic instead. Are you familiar with the knuckle mnemonic? No. Yes. You can tell me if I got it right then. Uh, this is something that I learned in grade school. Uh, it's a way to look at your hands and find out how many days are in a month. And the way okay. it works is, is you make two fists, you line them up next to each other so that you're looking at all your knuckles in a row. And then you count on your knuckles and, and, and the gaps between the knuckles where... January is the your your pinky knuckle, and that has okay. thirty one days. February has less than thirty one days because it's in the gap. March has thirty one days. April what? has less. <laughs> and then you count across, <laughs> and then there's two two knuckles in a row because your two hands are next to each other, and yeah. those are July and August. Oh my god, that's cool! I never knew that. It's <laughs> I'm a just good like trick. trying it out right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good trick. And I agree. the The poem is like not that useful because any any they all end with ember. Yeah, and I feel like the all the rest part of it is is extra bullshit because you can't even like memorize it and skip ahead to which part in the song it right, is. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely more efficient. But what I like especially about the knuckle mnemonic is that after you get to December, there's an extra couple of months at the end. I guess extra couple of, there's a gap and then another knuckle. And like, where did those months go? You're talking about the fantasy months? I think we used to have those months and now we don't. They're gone. Just blame it on aliens. <laughs> yeah, that's stolen time. Or perhaps a pope. Back before <laughs> the earth sped up its path around the sun. Yeah, right. there you go. <laughs> Supposedly the earth used to rotate faster, which would mean more days in a year. Oh yeah, that is true. I bet there's nobody who was making mass market calendars back then. <laughs> Probably not. Now, unless we go back in time. Let's say, like, Pam goes to Mars, right, at some point, and mm -hmm. people live there. Are they going to use January through December, or are they going to have their own calendar? Yeah. It's a good question. So, there. I'm sorry to, to nerd out on this one, but... No, this is what the show is about. It's fine. NASA has already solved this problem. Oh, course, they did? Because there are satellites all over the galaxy, or at least the solar system. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so they already have that problem of like, everyone's used to using, you know, like Greenwich Mean Time, but that doesn't make sense for a satellite that's, you know, flying past Pluto. They came up with their own universal time code that isn't tied to the Earth directly, uh, especially since you have relativistic time too. So right. it needs to account for time drift and all these complicated things. I went to lunch one time with an engineer who works on networking for NASA or for JPL. And he was explaining that like a lot of the times the satellites aren't 
directly uh, in view of the Earth. So if you want to send data to it, you have to bounce it off other satellites to get like around other you know bodies and yeah. just how complicated networking is. And I was like, I didn't really think about networking as like a physical act of rotating <laughs> a piece of metal in space to like carry a message somewhere else. Yeah. Aim the satellite dish. Yeah. <laughs> I only have the vaguest understanding of how this works, but I know that the concept of universal time doesn't really work outside of having a single planet. Uh, like satellites have their, would have to have their own clocks that just measure time internally. Like, you know what time it is relative to 10 minutes ago for yourself. And if you know roughly where other satellites are and have been, you can probably do some calculations to convert to their internal time, if that helps. I don't know. I suspect, like, the first person or people on Mars is going to be living on an Earth clock because that's when, like, shifts will change and messages will come through and all that. Feels like the first moment of actually like freedom on Mars is going to be when you tell them like your schedule is yours and we have our own schedule here and we'll let you know when we're awake and whatever. Yeah. But like the 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 period where you're just living on someone else's weird time and it doesn't line up well with your daylight or any of that sounds miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to be inside anyway, so I would feel terrible if I lived on Mars but I didn't have like a window. I guess that's true. Yeah. But it like it does feel like that's the easiest first step is just get a enclosed thing. Just get a get a slide projector. <laughs> it's like living on the Grand Canyon, but like you have to keep your eyes closed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank Brad for teaching me something new today. Yeah, thanks, Brad. I I mean I knew I knew about it already, but but you taught somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Brad, you're right. That rhyme does suck. Yeah, it does. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yes. Tina, your topic is Ted Lasso. Yes. Uh, I chose this because of uh, nefarious reasons, but I, I, I think that this show's great. I don't want to spoil it for you, Jim, so I don't want to say too much. It's about a coach that taught American football and was hired in England to teach um, an English football team or soccer. Um, Is this by accident? It was intentional. Okay. I just think that that concept's interesting to kind of accept because, like, if someone in our industry was hired to do a job that they were not qualified for, I do not think that... They'd make a sitcom about it. Or give that guy uh, the benefit of the doubt and love him as much as, like, we all love Ted Lasso. At least the viewers of the show Yeah, Ted Lasso. Yeah. So that's why I wanted but, to bring it up. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like in the games industry, what would, I guess there's a bunch of different definitions of producer, but like, I'm trying to think of like, what job could you accidentally get because your qualifications had the same word in them, but didn't actually yeah. indicate that you were qualified to do that job. Like, okay, there's, there's people who do programming in terms of like designing a TV schedule. They call those people programmers. Like, if one of those people were hired to do, like, engine developments, that would be pretty good. <laughs> oh. You got your classic train engineer. Right. Yes. Yeah, but uh, I, I I think this show is really good and worth checking out. And uh, I only watched it because Sloppy encouraged me to. Um, I really had known nothing about it before I started watching it, and I was thoroughly surprised. 
Now, Slotha, give us give us your spoiler-free take on this show. It is the least skeptical show I've seen in a very long time. Like, it is earnest, and it's not pessimistic. Mm. And it's really rare to see that. Uh, and it's kind of infectious. Like, when you watch it, you're just sort of... It's refreshing in a way that makes you want to give the world a better chance. Yeah. That does sound good. That does sound like something I should check out. Yeah, because... You know, even though Ted Lasso does not know all the rules of soccer, he still tries in earnest to do the best job he can. Just watching it makes you think like, oh, like, I wish our world was like this. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> you know, someone uh, was kind to people that weren't generous to him and then or her and made the world a better place because they were still, you know, turning the other cheek and trying to do the best they could. Yeah, I feel like. 30, 40 years ago, we had that world. People weren't trying to cut every margin they can, like to, like to optimize everything. And it's getting worse with like with computers doing the work of optimization. This this little little uh, aside might be too much of a bummer to include in a in a, <laughs> in a segment about something so heartwarming. Well, I mean, it kind of makes you think like, why can't we all be more like Ted Lasso? <laughs> why can't we all be more? Uh kind to each other and uh realize that if someone's having a really bad day and takes it out on you that maybe you know that person's hurting and they don't need to good attitude to have if you can remember do yeah but i i just feel like someone like that might be chewed out and eaten alive in our industry <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> uh everybody should another topic yep john your topic is my post burnout solo european vacation with a guy who had illicit keys to notre dame <laughs> yeah it's a big one i'm ready i'm trying to skip to the the most salient part but there's a lot of details that'll feel like i'm waving them around <laughs> after titanfall one shipped in 2014 basically like that game was do or die for everyone who came to respawn and so i was about as invested as you could be in a project that one was uh stressful because it was an online only game which was Pretty new at the time, not unheard of, but pretty new. And we were doing, you know, new console and a lot of experimental tech. And so after it came out, I had been running on adrenaline for too long. So I had a, a, a normal burnout that is caused by the game releasing rather than burnout that is caused by like toxicity or, or you know, like a, a bad workplace. Yeah. My boss basically told me, like, go take a vacation. I, I don't care whether you want to or not, like, go, go leave for a while. And my wife was in grad school at the time. She just can't take a couple of weeks off grad school to go on a trip. So I decided to go solo to Europe and I bought a plane ticket there and a plane ticket back, but no other itinerary. And I have a friend who lives in Paris who is like urban explorer, but a little bit more than just that. And I didn't really understand all that when I went to go visit him in Paris and he pulled out like this giant, what you see from old movies for like a jailer key ring <laughs> that had like probably at least 70 keys on it. And he was like, do you want to go check out some of the churches here in Paris? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I got keys. I was really afraid because I'm a, a pretty conservative person in terms of risk taking. And he basically shoved me out the door and we went to this one tower in Paris and he just strolled up. We had to like make sure nobody was watching 
and strolled up, unlocked it. We went up the, like a lot of flights to the roof and I had this amazing nighttime view of Paris. And that sort of like won me over of like, yeah, this is scary, but it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. I proceeded to kind of bounce around Europe with him and he knew people everywhere. And it gave me like the, this absurdly exciting vacation for a guy who's like a boring programmer who makes video games. <laughs> we went to, there's a power station in Germany that we like kind of broke around where you're supposed to be and like investigated where it was, what was in there. It was a, it's an X power station. We went to this really cool ex-NSA listening post uh, outside of Berlin called Tufelsberg, which I recommend looking up. It's pretty wild. And it's basically like a tower that the NSA used to spy on East Germany. And the design of it is sort of remarkable uh, in that it looks very much like uh, the uh, genitals. Um, <laughs> If you if you look up a couple of pictures, you might pick up on the subtle similarity there. It's not technically like open to the public, but it is actually open to the public, so you can go and there's like weird people giving tours, even though it's not owned by them. Like they're squatting and taking money to give people tours of it. That's that's very funny. Anyway, so we did all that. We went to back to Paris again. I went to Bratislava and stayed in the ex-Soviet apartment building with a woman whose job it is to title porn videos. Like to come up with, with a name to put on the box? No, no, like on, on the sites. Like her job was like writing the title of the video. Okay. Yeah, the same thing as what I meant, but there's just no box. Yeah, no box. And then went back to Paris and went to the top of this church called Saint Sulpice, which is just the coolest view of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, that was like my favorite trip to rid yourself of burnout. I came back extraordinarily refreshed. Yeah, that sounds incredible. How did he get the keys to these places? So that's a good question. <laughs> uh, he used a variety of methods. But in the case of Notre Dame, a lot of these locks in, on these old buildings are not particularly great locks because nobody wants to go in and like replace the locks. And, and they're mostly open to the public anyway. But from what I understood, he would go to the lock with uh, like wax or like a very soft metal, put his like block key in and turn it until it bit hard enough and then pull it out and see which part of the key was now dented oh, wow. and would on the spot file it until it finally opened. And then he had like a, a working key. That's incredible. But like his dedication is extraordinary. And, and so he had keys to just about everything just I think in, he would be, in gaming terms, a completionist. Uh, <laughs> but he really just wanted to go check out everything. And he had this really interesting sense of, like, justice about it. Like, he heard rumors that kids were breaking into a particular famous building in Paris and that they were, like, having parties and, and like, breaking stuff. And that made him really mad. So over a, a long period, he slowly found a way to climb this very large tower. And so he could get in from the roof because he didn't know how they were getting in. And he went down and found that they were getting in through a door in the, in the sewers. And so he welded the door shut <laughs> and then like cleaned it up and then like rappelled down from the roof to like seal it back up so that they weren't screwing up this building anymore. It's a really weird morality bag yeah. where he's like breaking into places, but also... Did he also wear like a superhero outfit? No, he didn't. Uh, actually, it's... <laughs> I, at the time, had a, a big purple mohawk, which 
was the opposite of his style, where he is basically going out of his way to be forgettable so that people aren't really paying attention to him as he opens doors that aren't usually open. That makes sense. And so it became like this sort of weird stealth game where he was like, shit, I can't just like walk into these places with you because everybody looks at you and that's weird to me. So he had to like do extra kind of stealthy stuff to like wait until no one was around and then I had to duck in first and then he could do his thing. But it was definitely like an added challenge for him that he wasn't used to. Right. You can't like comb down your mohawk. You end up looking like a Muppet. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's not very uh, stealthy either. Yeah, I think you end up looking weirder. That's great. Or you do the like fifth element Gary Oldman where everyone just sees like it's shaved on one side and then you have this extraordinary comb over happening right and then that you, doesn't actually start at the right spot and you need like that that piece of plastic to go over your skull to protect your hair <laughs> yeah that also attracts attention right yeah obviously someone needs to make a wig for people who have a mohawk that's like just mostly one of the sides of your head right and then you can do the comb over and then it just looks like a normal haircut for times like this right uh, i don't know how big that market is but uh, i would be a potential customer I had really assumed that when you said he had a, a bunch of keys to a bunch of different places, I had assumed he had gotten them by trading with other people who also had this hobby. You know, you, you make two copies of your Notre Dame key and you, you trade one for a key to, I don't know, I can't think of a, the Louvre. Yeah, I bet he would not go to the Louvre because he would have too much respect for the art inside. Right. And and that wouldn't excite him, like going to a, a place that is less pristine and checking it out. Yeah. I think a lot of it is is the, the VIP quality of like, you can go to the Louvre. You don't have to like break in to go there. You just go. Uh, whereas he wants to see the parts that are not on public display. Yeah. There's a, um, a cave in Santa Cruz called the Hellhole, like a fairly common place for like, college students to go hang out if they're skinny enough to get through the the corkscrew um and the birth canal which are apparently names of places you have to wedge yourself through to get in there and i've definitely seen like people complain about people who've like been there hearing about how it used to be and like how people have like the students have destroyed it including like destroying the art that earlier students had made out of the, the clay walls of the cave you know and i don't know how you would police that kind of a spot because like you can't send a security guard down there uh, because they wouldn't fit like if you break a leg or something down there i don't know how you send uh the emts either it just seems like a terrible idea to go into this place in the first place but what i have heard is that the local caving community has kind of used that cave as like this will be our sacrifice where like we're keeping all the other locations of the cave of caves secret but this one we'll tell the public about so that they'll all go there and ruin just that one. Yeah. I wonder, like, if there's a... Like, could you just have a sacrifice church in, in Paris where, like, all the all the teens who want to party go to that one and it ends up being all uh, all messed up, but the rest, the rest of them Trash. are fine, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what the... Uh, what is it? The underground tunnels are supposed to be in Paris, right? That's where all the kids yeah, is go that, there. Do they build those to to lure in teens so the teens wouldn't be raucous on the streets? I've heard stories of teenagers going down into the caves to throw parties, and usually people don't 
bat an eye towards that. Just like, ugh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if I lived in Paris and I weren't super claustrophobic, I would definitely be doing that. So I understand. Yeah. I know my Paris friend was telling me that the, the parts you can go visit, like on the tours, are like a very small segment of the whole thing. Like once you get out of that area, there's it's not lit. It's there's not great maps of it. Right. Like it's very easy to get lost down there. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. That one of the things about the uh, the hellhole is that it is extremely well marked in terms of like there are arrows pointing to the exit, which is nice. That is great. I I, I mean the name alone really makes it a place that is enticing. Yeah, definitely want to go down there. <laughs> it's good marketing on that one. <laughs> I've been to the hellhole. The entrance has a bunch of like boards nailed over it such that you have to be extremely skinny to wedge yourself between the boards. And I think that no one knows for sure because like no one knows who put the boards there. But I think the intent was like, if you don't don't fit in here, you're not going to fit in the rest of the cave. Oh. Like, you know how they have those little uh, bars in front of underground parking lots so that if your car hits the top of the bar, you know, your car won't fit in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. The capacity thing. Right. That's a really clever way of doing it because you really don't want to find out later on. Yeah, no, that well, I mean, like, fortunately, like, you're, you're if you get fit through one way, you're going to fit through the other way. So you, you'll find out when you're on the side closest to the surface. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. John, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at John Shiring, and that's J-O-N, no H. Uh, and Shiring is S-H-I-R-I-N-G. That's probably the best place. Slash worst. <laughs> and Tina, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'm Tina on Twitter, which is T-E-A-N-A-H. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.